I care about this industry. I'm passionate about this industry. I want to make sure this industry continues to grow stronger, and it will. We, we will all be back. The only thing I cannot uh, you know, predict is the timeline, but it will be back. It always comes back. Uh, our DNA forces us to want to be together as human beings, and, and travel is innate in our DNA. I just don't know when and how and what that looks like yet, but it will be here at some point. That's travel industry legend and pro Michael Dominguez, the president and CEO of Associated Luxury Hotels International. Though we've been through a lot in the travel industry in the past weeks, and it's been hard, Michael comes with a ton of spunk, passion, and optimism. If you're ready to hear and feel some great vibes, you're going to love his realism and positivity. I'm your host, Kip Lambert, and you're listening to the Destinations Incentive Travel Podcast, where we help busy professionals like you conquer the challenge of creating memorable and motivating corporate retreats, incentive travel events, and meetings and conferences. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. So with me today uh, is Michael Dominguez with Al High, which uh, is an amazing collection of hotels around the world. Just grateful that he would join me today. Uh, just want to talk about the state of the industry, how things are going. Um, so first thing first, Michael, let's, let's just talk about you for a second. Sure. Um, tell me about your history in the industry. Where'd you get your start? How did you end up at Al High? Um, well, that, that, that's a long trek. Uh, got my start uh, in, you know, candidly, like many of us, a long time ago where I was bussing tables with Hyatt Hotels. That's how I got into this industry. <laughs> started bussing tables at 15 years old. Um, did not know I was going to stay in the hotel industry. It was never a plan. And, um, you know, lo and behold, as you get in there, there's a whole world and a, you know, a whole industry that I fell in love with. And um, I've worked with a variety of hotels, variety of independent hotels. I've worked with a few of the major brands. Uh, was a VP of a CVB for a few years, uh, selling a destination. And I thought that was brilliant. I always say that learning how to sell a destination makes you better at selling a destination resort. It really does. And uh, that was a great experience. And then um, I went to Lowe's Hotels and was in New York at our corporate offices uh, with Lowe's. And uh, at that point, uh, had been with Lowe's for seven years, got the knock on the door for an opportunity with MGM Resorts and um, went to MGM, was their chief sales officer for seven years. Um, somebody teases me that I have a seven-year itch because I uh, tend to last <laughs> seven years in these companies. Um, and it's interesting how they just come together. Yeah, you, probably the, the, the most telling piece of information I could, I could share is I signed the offer letter to come to Alhi seven years to the day that I signed the offer letter to leave Lowe's to go to MGM. To the day. Um, I, I couldn't make it up if I tried. And, uh, and not be, in both cases, I wasn't looking for it. And uh, the opportunity at Alhai to become president and CEO of uh, you know, a brand that's been around for 30 years, um, has a lot of credibility in the luxury space specifically. Um, and getting to be with independent hotels, and we were talking about this briefly, that I truly believe uh, love hospitality. And that has been, it's been fun. And uh, for my first six months, I got here in July, it was a, it was a really fun ride. And 
now it's fun, but really bumpy. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what I, I was going to ask you that. Um, kind of out of the fire and into the frying pan, July 2019. Yeah. You, you yeah. got started, and then, and then here, here we are in the middle of uh, COVID-19 territory, and, you know, yeah. today, you know. Yeah, I, I, I will I tell you, it's something I've always shared as a philosophy, though. Um, what, what I think people are sometimes surprised with me is I pivot well. And, you know, I had a lot of plans, a lot of things we wanted to move forward. And during this process, it's keeping our team very focused on what's important. And what we've done is make sure we're connecting with our, plant, our, our uh, client community and our member hotels every day. And we're just flooding everybody with reach out and engagement. And we're still booking business into the future and other, other pieces of it. But I, I think it's important. That there's an important piece to it. It doesn't matter what you've planned out you know, at this point, um, you know, when the world changed and kind of got flipped on its head in March, it didn't matter what your strat plan was. It didn't matter what you put into a budget. None of that is relevant right now. And anybody trying to even put a strat plan together now, I think is silly. You know, uh, one of my, one of my, uh, or my right hand, she's our chief sales officer. We were talking last week and she, you know, she candidly said, because we were trying to figure out what, what we're going to book for the month and that type of thing. And she's, she said, she said, I usually have a handle on, I, she goes, I feel like I have no control right now. And I said, you know why? Because you have no control right now. You don't. You don't. So take a deep breath, understand we have zero control. And, and I actually shared that with the team today. And I, I think it's an important leadership lesson for many of us is look, our teams feel it. And, and unless you think you had the wrong people in the job to begin with, you know, those salespeople are driven by booking. And, and when you're not booking tremendously and you're seeing cancellations come in and all that math is coming together, you know, I had to remind all of them today is I don't have any expectations. Just keep doing what we're doing. Make sure we're connecting. Make sure we're doing our role very effectively every day. It's all we can control. And, and I'm a firm believer. You can only control what you can control. And I don't worry about what I can't control. And, and that is an important message to keep delivering to our team because like, it's hard. People get, salespeople specifically, your juice is from selling. Your juice is from getting the booking and moving oh, it. Yeah. yeah, and if you don't get it, you start to become down. And it's important to find ways that we're having fun, you know, and, and reminding everybody, we can only do our best every day. And I really do see a light at the end of the tunnel and it's finally not another train coming at us. So we're, we're doing better, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, so as people have just listened to this first part, they, I hope they just feel kind of that intensity of the passion that you have for our industry and just for where we're headed. Because you know what? We don't know. We don't have so much information. It's hard to make decisions with, with limited information. But um, passionate leadership, I think, is what people are drawn to. So tell me about this. Like, where does this come from for you? Where does it come from, this, this passion for hospitality, planning events, and really ultimately delighting the guests that end up staying at each hotel? You know, part of it is I'm high, hardwired this way. I, I am, um, you know, the My Intent bracelets uh, that are out there. Yeah. My, my wife bought me one not too long ago, and the My Intent she bought me was passion. And she said, you have a passion for everything you do. And, and it is in my DNA. Um, I don't care what I'm doing, I'm all in. And once I've chosen to do it, I'm all in. And with this industry, from the moment I decided I'm staying in it, um, that's why I'm so involved. Uh, I, I'm not involved with 
U.S. Travel Association and Meetings Means Business Coalition and FICP and ASAE. I'm not involved with all that because I don't have enough to do. Um, I, I'm really involved with it because I care and I care to make a difference. And, and it's not about me. It's about can we make this industry better and stronger? Um, you know, and, it, and it's funny because it, it, I think it's an important leadership trait that most people don't quite grasp until later. Uh, but when I get on any board, I let everybody know, my job is to give you my unadulterated opinion, and I will. I will completely support any decision you make because it's not mine. But my job as a board member is to give you my advice, regardless if I think you're right or wrong. I'm going to tell you, but don't think that I'm going to be upset if you make a decision that's contrary to my advice. Same when I was at MGM and working for our COO. It was one of my first conversations with him. My job is to give you my unadulterated opinion. I will fully support anything you decide because it's not my decision. And, and I think that that's an important piece of this puzzle. I care about this industry. I'm passionate about this industry. I want to make sure this industry continues to grow stronger and it will. We, we will all be back. The only thing I cannot uh, you know, predict is the timeline, but it will be back. It always comes back. Uh, our DNA forces us to want to be together as human beings and, and travel is innate in our DNA. I just don't know when and how and what that looks like yet, but it will be here at some point. Very cool. You know, I, I was, I had a follow-up question to this, but I think you already answered it. It's, <laughs> what is, you know, your definition of what your personal mission is, but I, you, you gave it to me, a passion for the industry. Well, I mean, yeah. That things are going to get better. Well, what I, else would you add? Distill a little bit more for me what your, what your mission is. Yeah, it's a, a mission about people. Uh, like I, I care about the team members uh, that are under my care and, and that are my responsibility. Um, that's why I've worked so hard, like many small companies in, you know, during this time frame, I, I am proud to say we haven't had to furlough or lay off anybody. Uh, doesn't mean we haven't all, all taken a little bit of it on the chin. But we are committed to make sure, and, and I made it my mission from day one. Um, I've been transparent. I've been very candid with everybody. Um, they've all thanked me for the transparency. I, I've let them know exactly where we are, and, and we're really good footing. The interesting thing is, like most companies, my business is fundamentally sound. My cash flow is incrementally weak at the moment. Uh, that's everybody's oh, yeah. issue. Yeah, everybody's issue, and I know that. Amen, brother. <laughs> I <Amen>. know. <laughs> but fundamentally, our business model, we're going to be fine. We just got to get through this stretch. And, and we know that. Um, I have a passion towards people and for people. And one of the reasons I educate so much in the industry, and I, I get asked to speak quite a bit. And by the way, that speaking I've done over all these years, I don't get paid for. I, I volunteer my time. Yeah, cool. and, and, and I do it because I care about the people. And if I can help educate and if I can help somebody, somebody's life just be a little bit better. And, and it's every now and then, I will tell you, I'm tired. I've been on the road. I've done a lot of these and are like, are they making any difference? And it's always then that I get these emails out of the blue that are thanking me for, and it's somebody that's saying, you have no idea how you impacted my life. You have no idea how I've taken that and ran with it in a different way. So, you know, the, the passion, yeah, for the industry, but that passion for the industry is there because I really care about the people in the industry. That's cool. You know, those little nuggets, when you do have people that you influence and they come and every so often you hear about somebody, it's kind of like my golf game, you know, like 
there might be one there might be one or two shots in 18 holes where i go wow that was that was really a great drive or boy that putt was nice and it keeps you coming back right you don't need to uh you know feel like you're maybe influencing or or making a difference every single day but it, it certainly is nice i think i i think i i think i kind of moved you off the ball a little bit just talking a little bit about al high so yeah. associated luxury hotels international yes sir president and ceo so what so what elements set your member hotels apart from other luxury properties out there and you know what's the what's the, what's the game what what are your member hotels going for yeah you know um it's interesting because our our member hotels are um they're all luxury and on top of it they are some of the best of the best i mean when you think about you know, us having a portfolio from coast to coast that can be uh, the Breakers to Terranea to the Broadmoor to Pinehurst to Greenbrier. I, I mean, it, it is um, an assortment of luxury hotels that is candidly unmatched. And it's some of the larger names uh, in that world, plus independent brands. Um, you know, we forget about the independent brands. You know, we represent uh, Lowe's, we represent MGM Resorts. Um, they're independent brands because they own and manage their buildings, unlike ownership models that are management models of the traditional branded names that you could think of. And, and that makes us very different because we have owners and management companies that are so invested in the hotels and the ex they are so experience driven. And I know everybody talks about it. It's the touches you find at these hotels that I candidly missed. Uh, when you know you go into bigger boxes and 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 what that looks like, and it's the turndown every night that literally is going to educate you about local artists and mm -hmm. and a local flair uh, and educating you on why you're in the area you're in. That that is just not found today uh, because it's too mass. Uh, there, there's there's too much of it, and I get it. Uh, but I think that's special. I think that's really special about these hotels. Uh, that they really, and, and you know, we said it earlier, it's, it's hospitality. They care about the hospitality business, not the hotel business. And, and that's the difference. And how do I make that experience specifically unique? And um, it's, it, it's something that when I've come back to, again, most of my career was involved in independent hotels. And when I came back to this, it, it was kind of, kind of uh, really um, impressive and quite reflective on my part, because as I started to go see our hotels right away, uh, I, it hit me and, it, and I remembered immediately on why I really enjoyed uh, the hospitality part of our business, uh, because it, it really is uh, thoughtful and in what I like to say, intentional. If you're gonna yeah. do it well, it has to be very intentional as far as every touch point of the journey for the customer. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like the, the times that I've stayed in an Alhai hotel, you really feel a sense of the destination and the people you go to the concierge and they're excited to have you not only experience great things about the, the hotel or resort, but they are really invested in really showing you a good time in that destination. Like they, they're, they're experts in the area that they're in. And so many are filled with locals. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to have a great mix of local people that, that, run the hotels that 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 really put on a great show for for the guests because it um it really adds that local flair and that's one thing i've loved about all, all of your uh member hotels they've just been you know really fantastic yeah well and I, like i think it's the the whole mission of a of a good hospitality person is to create memories 
and and it's memorable. You know, it's it's yes. funny. I, I thought about this recently. My wife has this weather changes. She pulls out a, a little sports coat that she's wearing, and she still has the bee, the little bee that was thrown at her at the at the Golden Bee at the Broadmoor, which is their their pub, and they're known for these little bees that they throw at you, and they just stick. It's still on her jacket, and and it's funny because she's never going to remove it. But when she puts it on, all of a sudden you're thrown back to the time of when we got the bee. And, and yeah. we were at the Golden Bee and then we talking and all of a sudden you get in this whole thing about, remember that trip and remember when we did this and remember when we did that. <laughs> that, that, is what, that is what the travel and hospitality world is supposed to be. You know, creating memories that you'll be able to reflect on for a lifetime. Yeah, it's what we say at Destinations, you know, memories truly mo motivate. When you think about the opportunity to make new memories, that's motivational. And when you can have a bank of great memories to draw upon, um, you, you always feel motivated to, you know, keep moving forward because you know that, you know, good times are ahead. And uh, memory, making, making those travel memories, I think that's, that's definitely a passion that we share. But so you and I, uh, just talking offline, we, we, well, I wanted to talk about COVID-19 yeah. and the I mean, can we say it? it? It has been a devastating impact on our industry, hospitality, incentive travel, um, yeah. all across the board. It's been been really hard. You know, I've, I was watching you very closely on social media, especially LinkedIn, and just noticed that you seem to be way out ahead of everybody on this. You seem to recognize the the gravity and the seriousness of it way ahead of your time. So, how like were, did you have a crystal ball? What <laughs> what were you doing? Uh, like I, I'm very much data data driven and data oriented, and um, I, I literally go down a rabbit hole um, just about every night, and and definitely researching and understanding it. And um, you, you know, I, I think it's hard right now because there's two conversations we're having, and one conversation is the health aspect of what we're dealing and dealing with, and the other part's the economic aspect, and and both of them are running in parallel, and you have to have those dialogues and. Um, I, I made this comment earlier is um, we, we also have friction in these conversations right now in the U.S. And that friction is being driven, again, on both sides of this, it's two camps. And the friction that's being driven on, you know, states that are opening, you know, we're forgetting the Northeast Corridor and its experience is very different than what is being experienced in, in the rest of the country. And I, you know, when I do my updates, I actually show a map from Johns Hopkins that shows you by county the outbreak concentration around the country. And what you will see is there's a large part of the country that has no issue. And, and it's going back to what we talked about is understanding, and I don't think people fully understood why we were doing what we were doing. It was not to keep most of us from getting the virus. It was to flatten it and spread it out over a long period of time so that the medical community could handle it. Um, what's interesting is I look at three of the more populous states, Florida, Texas, and California. And California, by the way, is second in testing in the country, only behind New York. And California's positives on their test of almost 600,000 tests are coming back at less than 7% positives. On the Northeast or in that Northeast corridor, it's almost 30%. When you bring it all together, it is a different conversation. And Texas is under 9%, Florida under 9%, and they're number three and four in testing. Well, these are the most populous states. 
So if we were gonna have a massive crisis on the health system, it would be with these populous states. But I, th th that is one conversation, a little bit of the friction. What people are experiencing is a reality in the Northeast, but it's not the reality over the rest of the country. The other friction is when we, we're talking about getting back to work and getting back to business. You've got a concentration of people that are saying, we should just still work from home. And you've got 30 million Americans that don't have that option because they're now unemployed. <laughs> That's the friction. You know, it's easy for people to say, hey, I'm working from home, we should stay working at home. While there's other people that are fighting for their livelihood and their businesses that they've spent a lifetime building. And I, when I say that, I sometimes get some heat in the industry because people hear me saying I'm putting business ahead of life. I never said that. What I'm saying is there is a friction point. And at some point, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that anytime I've tried to share good news through this, that there's this, oh, you're being too optimistic. And I always say, look, I'm not Pollyanna, but I'm not Eeyore either. I, I'm trying to be very fair and balanced on what is really going on and what does this look like? And, and I think that's an interesting one because I, I sometimes take heat because I, I've been critical of the mainstream media on how they've over, over uh, dramatized some of the news. And, and there's a way to do statistics. And, and I'm not being critical. I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I don't think they're lying. My point is they do not know how to tell a health crisis. This is new for everybody. And if I'm going to hold government officials, uh, you know, li literally responsible for how they handle this, if I'm going to hold medical officials responsible for how they handle this, we need to hold the media responsible too, because they have a responsibility to learn and, and understand that what they're doing matters and how they phrase things matters. And I'll give you a couple examples, but Bill Maurer had this, this really brilliant piece on this thing. And it was interesting because one of the commentaries or one of the comments he made in all of this was uh, very, very clear that he, he made a comment. He said, um, there's no reason to put hot sauce on a jalapeno. And, <laughs> and, and I think that is exactly where the media has been at this stage of the game. Um, and, th and that's an important one. Uh, but when I, I look at it, I'll give you an example is Dr. Fauci talked about last week, re, re, uh, remdesivir is actually getting fast tracked by the FDA. He actually stopped in the middle of a White House briefing to say, by the way, we've had a breakthrough because this has been shown in a clinical study, in a controlled study with a placebo group that it actually is working. And, and the interesting thing is it's a viral treatment. He actually said in that statement, and, and if you know Dr. Fauci or you hear him, he's very conservative about what we talk about into the future, or being definitive. He actually said, we now know that a drug can stop the virus. Now, my point is, why wasn't that every headline of every newspaper? Yeah. It, it, it should have been. It should have been. But if some state had a death count that had increased, we would have heard that. That would have been the headline. And, and that's where I'm talking about the balance. Why couldn't we share a little bit of optimism that we now know a drug can stop the virus and they're going to continue to make it better, as he said, with different combinations of drugs. I just don't see the same emphasis on the good news as I do the bad news. And it's not that there isn't bad news. Uh, but when you look at the trend and you look at the curve and you look at it globally and you know where we're at, it has a life cycle. And it's a life cycle of about 120 days. And you can look at it anywhere around the world. There is this life cycle to where we're at. Um, I just think we have to be more balanced with sharing balanced news. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, you know, part of this media complex 
is a little bit of if you're if you're a journalist and you're in New York City and you're hunkered down, that's your reality. Yeah. And so I you're agree. gonna you're gonna you're gonna find just of course you're gonna find ways to say, hey, how can this be any better? Because exactly. when you come out here, you come out here to Utah, we did not have a full stay at home order. Um, and we're a pretty, we're a very vibrant economy with, with yeah. tons of travel, great, you know, great business happening in Utah. And, you know, we, we're just not having the same. Now we did do social dis. We've done social distancing. We are doing it like, like you've explained uh, to me before we started in Texas. Um, yeah. But we're not seeing as much. And it's just like, you know, New York and that Northeast corridor is so much different. I don't know how or why it's different. I, I'm not, I'm not that well versed into it to try and explain it, but I think it's fair to say we can't have similar policies and procedures from one area to the next, just because of there, there's so many different things that make us so different from each other that we can't just have one blanket thing where everybody has to do the same thing. And, you know, going back to your point of like, not everybody can work from home. We're in an industry where you and I salespeople, we can connect with clients. We can advertise, we can, you know, we can do things over zoom like we're doing, but the people that work on the ground in the restaurants, making up rooms in events, they don't have a work from home solution. It's just, People aren't coming to the hotel. We're not doing events. We're not doing these things. And so these people are severely impacted. And I think that we can have a conversation that is let's take care of the health crisis. Like we shouldn't ignore it, but at the same time, the economics, if we don't get that right, then we can't really help on the pandemic side. We got to have, we got to have a better balance of, of what's going on there. Yeah. And, and like, I, I'm not the one to question and I wouldn't, you know, when we, we had a, you know, federal guidelines to say we're going to be locked down for six weeks and stay at home. I'm not questioning all that. I think people were making the best decision they could, possibly could. But to now not yeah. understand that we have better intelligence, we, we have better information, we have better data, and to say we can phase openings uh, makes sense, to your point. And, and I've said this, like the reality of people that are living in areas that literally have been severely impacted and had the severe cases and had their health system literally flooded, I get that's the reality. But to your point, that's not the reality in many other parts of the country. And um, I do think there's an opportunity for us to phase in an approach. You know, the, the areas that are ready to go, they should go. Other areas, they need to slowly come behind it. And uh, I, I think it is an important one. And you said, you know, you don't know why. I, I don't know why either, but I was talking to somebody today and I said, I'm, I'm gonna give you one guess. When you look at our East Coast corridor, and then we look at Europe, if you roll Europe in all together, you know, Europe still represents almost 40% of all the cases in the world. And so why was Europe so impacted? Why is our Northeast corridor? Two, one, density. They have huge, dense populations in small areas. But I don't think it's just density. I think it's the other part. You know what's common in those areas? They all use train and subways to get, get everywhere they're going. And then when I think about California, Texas, and Florida, everybody's in a car. Nobody uses well, a train and nobody uses subways. Um, yeah. It has to be. And I lived in New York, you know, and, and I lived in, in Connecticut. It's, you use trains and subways to get around. Yeah, it's, it's a communicable disease. So <laughs> it's going to, 
you know, we, we always decry that, you know, that pesky Norwalk virus that can plague any hotel or cruise ship, which is one of the more contagious, just, just hard things for a hotel or a venue to go through. Right. Um, and it just the amount of people at a certain point, you can't stop it. Hey, just a quick break here. And one thing to note. Right now, more than ever, you need a go-to guide to help you navigate the most difficult challenge the travel and hospitality industries and the world has ever faced. Multiple wars, recessions, several pandemics, 30 years and three generations later, we're still here and we plan on being here for many more. We just don't stop. We're always moving forward. So to keep moving forward in 2020, Destinations will host two familiarization trips for qualified corporate and incentive travel buyers to see and experience. We have some really exciting locations, so check these out. In September, we're headed to Bora Bora, French Polynesia to dip our toes in the warm blue lagoon at the Four Seasons Resort. In November, we'll end up in Los Cabos, Mexico to check out the brand new Nobu and Hard Rock Resorts. So why do we do these trips? At Destinations, we believe in the importance of test driving a trip, location, or hotel before you take the plunge and spend a whole lot of your company's money. If you're interested in joining us, drop me a note on LinkedIn or check them out at destinationsinc.com forward slash events. What do you think could be some of these long-term effects on our industry? Like what, what, what are you talking with your hotels about? What are you helping them prepare for? What are they talking about? Um, some of these long-term effects, social distancing, all these other things? Well, I, I think it's important to put it into two categories. It's short-term and long-term. And uh, what we're looking at short-term, it's literally the reality between now and the end of 2020. Um, it's going to look different. It's going to have to look different. But if you follow the guidelines uh, that have been given to us by um, the coronavirus task force, um, those guidelines tell us, you know, in phase one, it's still strict social distancing and no, groups of no more than 10 people. Well, most of the country's in phase one. We've been in phase one while we've been sheltered down. Yeah. So that phase one is still in, in effect. When we get to phase two, which could be as early as 14 days, it then calls for moderate distancing. Now, what we're trying to get clarification on is what does moderate mean? We don't have the number yet, but we know it's not strict and strict is six feet. And if it's anywhere between strict and moderate, it could be three feet, it could be four feet. And then we move into phase three, which literally could be the middle of summer. Um, I would be thinking late July mid, or mid-June, uh, early July in most places. There's no social distancing in the order at that point or in the guidance. Mm. So it is short-term and long-term, but for a psychology of traveler and a psychology of a meeting attendee, for instance, a mice attendee, um, you are looking at protocols. And you know what's one of the things we're having to flip on its head is hotels are relatively really good at sanitation. We, we have to be. Um, what we've never done a good job of is one, communicate it, and two, show it. And what I mean by that is you go into a luxury hotel, we tend to hide the cleaning behind the scenes because you don't want to ruin that luxury experience. Yeah, you don't want to see the back of house. Exactly. And what's going to flip on its head is people are going to want to see people cleaning and wiping and fogging and doing all the things we need to be doing throughout yeah. the day. That's a real shift, but it's a positive shift because again, it's not that hotels haven't been doing it, 
we have to be more intentional that people see it and understand it. But there is going to be some thought process on protocols. It has to be. Um, how do we treat elevators? How do you treat elevator banks? Um, how do you limit number of people going in elevators? Um, do you start putting literally uh, Perel stations at every landing of, of an elevator bank? Yeah, it's going to be. And, and th those are going to be some, some really subtle changes uh, that we're going to have to look at. On the meeting side, it's massive because, you know, things about we can easily set a six, uh, a one per six foot easily. And, and I can get a classroom for 250 people. We've already diagrammed it out. Classroom 250 with six feet separation all the way around. I can make that happen. It's easy. Um, what you look at, though, is think about a coffee break. Okay, coffee break, how do you keep social distancing when you have a coffee break that everybody's flooding to and now everybody's touching everything? I, I see those kind of graduating to a point of we're gonna have to service them. Think yeah. you're like of being at a Starbucks, somebody's gonna hand you your coffee instead of you digging in and grabbing your coffee. So I would think in food and beverage, you're thinking about, you know, when you used to set up for a dinner, the question would be how many bars do I need for 300 people? It's now gonna be how many coffee stations do I need for 300 people? Because yeah, I'm going to have okay. to have multiple coffee stations and I'm going to have to be serving the people their coffee versus them reaching and grabbing. And, and that has to completely be thought differently in the short term. Uh, we've talked about buffets are kind of done in the short term. Nobody is going to put a, a buffet in the middle of a ballroom where you can't keep social distancing at all if you're going to go through a buffet. And those used to be buffets where everybody served themselves. Don't think anybody's gonna to wanna to be touching the handle that 800 people have touched. So we've got a lot to think through in that, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it has to be different. Um, you're probably see a lot more plated service. Um, you're gonna see a little more separation on tables. I don't think you're gonna be at a round of 10 anytime in the near future. You, know, you might be at a round of eight, more likely six, but you're gonna spread it out just a little bit more. So people have a little bit of elbow room versus we used to always maximize the space and be as tight as we could. So how is this going to impact speed and cost? Um, well, like cost, I, I think from a hotel perspective, we don't have a choice. You know, from a, it, it's, it's going to be a cost of doing business and we have to. Now, you know, some of that cost gets traded off. You know, as I told you, I may have somebody else serving coffee. Those would probably be the same people that would have been replenishing a buffet <laughs> or something okay. along those lines. You're switching out some of that labor. Um, some of it's just process. It's not even cost, it's more process. Uh, you, you'll probably, if I'm serving you your coffee candidly, you probably have less waste, you know, when it's all said and done. Yeah. As far as what we're serving and those type of things. Uh, it's actually a better touch point, you know, from a service standpoint. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah, so I think those are, and I went to a meeting that right when we were about to close down everything, it was that mid-March, it was probably one of the last meetings that happened. And they were practicing this and they already had it in play because the CDC had given guidelines for what this should look like. And you know what we got? Bro uh, box breakfasts, box lunches, they were handed okay. to us. And we, and we had already been in rounds of four for the meeting room. And that's what I think will change a little bit in the short term. Like we, we set the meeting room for rounds of four. You didn't have a classroom and then moved into a lunchroom. You, you went back to where you were sitting and you sat in your same spot and you ate there, uh, but you kept the separation uh, because they were rounds that were set. Usually you would have set for 10, you're setting for four people. So you're able to keep some distancing at the same time. You're not taking the extra space to feed somebody and you're going to need 
the extra space because you're having to make the group more spread out to begin with. So you're losing some of the extra space you used to have for feeding. Yeah. So how, how does that impact the size of groups? You know, as we've been able to sell, yeah. you know, we're, we're able to sell rooms and then there's also meeting space. And sometimes these meetings may not, may not always encompass everybody that's staying at the hotel. Correct. And through the fire code, we've got, we know how many people we can fit in the space. You know, how do our, do our drawings change now? Do our, like how, they do. How are we going to, how are we going to roll this out and how quickly can we do it? Well, what's happening is you're going to find in the short term, we're already rolling it out. Uh, been having calls with the hotels. We've already re-diagrammed. We know what that looks like on, on average uh, to keep six foot separation. Uh, it's about 60%. Uh, you're going to get about 60% of the attendance that you used to have. Now I just said a minute ago that as we get to phase three, phase two is moderate. If that's three foot separation, I'm gonna get 75% somewhere in that ballpark, maybe even 80% into the same space. So th there's an opportunity here is that we move, as we move along um, that you're gonna see us, we're gonna need a little more space. Uh, you, you may, what you're talking about is you may have been in a 5,000 square foot ballroom. You may need to, and you may have only been using two parts of the ballroom. You may need to have to right. use all, that's all it is. We're gonna to have to expand it and make it a little bit bigger. And, and again, I can't stress enough, short-term versus long-term. Um, I really hope, as Dr. Fauci mentioned, there's a chance we could have hundreds of millions of vaccines um, or vaccine doses by January. If we get a vaccine in January, this comes off the table and we get back to some type of normalcy. But I think some of the things put in play are gonna be good. They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna help a flu season be less deadly because flu seasons are very deadly here in the United yeah. States. So, you know, everybody washing their hands, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to wash your hands frequently. And I hope it continues because we'll, we'll actually help save lives with other outbreaks and other things going on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it is a good thing to see more of the hygiene coming in. And even with my youngest, she's a little, just turned four and she was at the, at the sink in the bathroom and she's washing her hands and I can see she's really going on for, <laughs> a good 30 plus seconds. And I said, boy, you're really, you're really doing a good job. And she says, yeah, dad, I got to get the Rona's off. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. It's, it's quite funny when you say that it's um, just the things you don't think about. Of course, Corona beer came up at the beginning, you know, when this oh. started, but we, we're looking at houses. We've only been here a short time frame, and we're looking at homes and we really like this one style for a house we could build. And, and then the guy goes, I just have to tell you, it's one of our most popular, but unfortunately, it's, it's named the Corona. And it is. It's a, the actual floor plan is Corona is the name of it. And he, he was apologetic. And we're like, we get it. I mean, it wasn't that's a like bad. Building on a, that's like building on an Indian burial ground, right? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you were ever a Downton Abbey fan, uh, but we, we, we were always watching Downton Abbey. And if you ever saw the intro, there's the dog. It's the big lab that's there walking up. Yep. From one season, one season to the next, that dog died. I mean, in one show, it was one show, all of a sudden, oh, poor dog, and they're petting him, and then they get a puppy. The dog's name was Isis, and this is when Isis was breaking out across yeah. <laughs> the world as a terrorist group. The dog disappeared in one day. I'm not saying it was because of that. I just found it <laughs> odd in the storyline. All of a sudden, the dog is gone. <laughs> oh, I love it. Kind of the same thing, you know? <laughs> Well, you know, I think we've covered most of, most of the questions that, you know, I kind of posed to you at the beginning. 
you know, I think the one big one though is, um, you know, a lot of these companies, like we're, we're talking to each other on Zoom. We know that if you're working for Zoom right now, or if you've got, you know, if you're involved with this company, it's now's a good time to be involved with Zoom, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's going to be booms in the economy, but you know, you've got other companies like Microsoft, Facebook, they announced internally that all of their meetings are going to be virtual until really the spring or even the summer of next year in some right. of the cases I've read. So I think we are going to see some of this impact. Um, how, I mean, again, I'm going to ask you to get that crystal ball out. Like have, yeah. have you, have you been able to, with your teams, put together some projections or numbers of what, what, well, what the kind of temperature is out there for, for booking events into the future? Yeah. For 21 on, we're not seeing that pushback at all. And, you know, and I think it's interesting that every major announcement you've heard of that kind of commentary has been a tech company. If you noticed, yeah, you're not okay. hearing it from other companies or other sectors. It's tech. And, um, you know, when I think about that, I, I think it's twofold. Um, you look at some of the meetings in those, in those type of companies, they're so global and platform in who their audience is. And, and I think it even has less to do with what's happening in the U.S. than what's happening around the globe. Um, there's still going to be other areas and other outbreaks that are just picking up right now. This is going to go oh, yeah. on. So if you have international attendees, if you have customers that are from those destinations, how do you manage all that? How do you plan for it? I think that's part of it um, when you hear some of those discussions. And I just find it interesting that the major announcements you've heard on that front have all been tech companies. They haven't been other verticals. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm glad you said that because in my head that, that's had me wondering about some of our customers and, you know, what are their thoughts? And, and many of them right now are in that holding pattern. And so I'm, I'm kind of hoping to, to grab them and say, yeah. you know, while you can get a lot of business done on Zoom and, and there's a lot of great things that can be done in these virtual meetings, there's just nothing like being face-to-face. -face. Like, um, like there, you, there, is not, there is not a client we've talked to that thinks this replaces face-to-face. -face. Those decisions are being made due to concerns with liability, concerns with, you know, what, how you're going to control all of this and scope and size. So I think that those are a little bit unique. Um, I, I have heard consistently hybrid's going to be, you know, the name of the game between now and the end of the year and probably continue. Um, yeah. If there's any positive, I think there's a lot of people that have always wanted to bring a hybrid element into their meetings, but had never taken the investment to do it. They now know they can. And if there's any positive, because I, I do believe technology brings in an audience that couldn't get there for a variety of reasons, but shouldn't replace face to face. And, and we've seen that in the past. So I think that's a real positive as we move forward. I can tell you, we brought a, uh, an executive VP onto one of our calls of a large financial institution. And she was very clear that, I mean, she's got seven contracts to book between now and the end of the year uh, with nice. meetings they're replacing. And most importantly, her commentary is for 21, they're treating it 21 and beyond. They're treating it normal. They're moving on. And, and they're booking and they're doing the things like you normally would do. I think that's a vast majority of companies. We've heard that and seen it. Um, you know, if you listen to the earnings call of MGM, their, their 2021 is ahead of their 2019 pace uh, or 2020 pace. So they've got more in the books for 21 than they did because people are moving. Some of the stuff they moved from this year, they moved into next year. So it's even compressing next year even further. And there was a great survey by North Star Media and it was in their Pulse survey. And it was about 1200 planners, good assortment of corporate third party association. It was pretty mixed. Um, but 
70% of those planners were rescheduling meetings uh, between September or August and December of this year. 70% of planners have meetings cool. to reschedule. And then more importantly, when you got into new meetings, 40% of it was for 2020 and the rest of it was for next year. But you didn't have a lot coming off the table. And like, I, I think some of those decisions that are being made, probably too long-term if the world changes and we know what it looks like getting out of here and things start to move, you may see some of that direction change. You know, people are making decisions with everything they know right now. That doesn't yeah. mean 60, 90 days from now when we have a little bit of a clearer picture. And let's say we have the Oxford vaccine that is in human trials right now that they, they think could be ready by September. You can't tell me if that announcement isn't made in September and that we know we're gonna have a vaccine by January, that people aren't completely rethinking if they had pulled things off for 21 in that first quarter, second quarter, that type of thing. Um, there, there's a whole different thought process. So, you know, I, I, always, I always take that with a grain of salt because I, I think it's important to understand that people are making decisions with everything they know right now. And some of that will change as we start to know more. Yeah, I think too, um, the, the economy obviously is, is hurting right now. And, there's a ton of unemployment. Hopefully that can bounce back quickly. Yeah. You know, some of the stuff that's getting pushed to 2021, you hope it, you know, it isn't impacted a lot by what's economically happening right now, because that's also, you know, one of those fears that could come into people's minds of like, if I push my 2020 event into 2021, but if my sales are still anemic for a little while, yep. maybe pushing, maybe pushing that down the road is just delaying the inevitable and I'm going to need to potentially cancel. So you know, well, and, and it could be the other side. We... It could be the other side. If if you're behind sales, you, you try to jump sales. You try to pump it up, and part of that pumping up, you know, pumping up. And our industry is really good about this. They're sales launches. They are sales initiatives. They are they are something to get the team going. Um, so it might even push it into the right area as long as we can do it safely. Yeah, and I think too, you know, we're we're super blessed to be well in Utah. We're the kind of the Silicon Valley of uh, network marketing companies. Yeah, yep. I know it well. <laughs> always, always tend to do well um, in a down economy. And you know, as I've been talking to some of my uh, my cohorts and friends in that industry, they're excited right now. Yeah. Um, a lot of their people have been furloughed from their their real job, right. and they have all this spare time to work their home-based business and uh, their sales are up in some case, some cases, some of these companies are up 200, 300% month over month in sales. And, and so uh, they're excited. I've got so many clients that are looking at doing, you know, trips at the end of this year uh, and they haven't even booked them yet. And, and some of them are just kind of just waiting to see what some of these travel advisories look like. Um, and what kind of is the beauty of this too, is I think it's pretty easy to work with people like you, on the hotel side to say, well, let's throw together a contract that maybe speaks a little specifically to your fears and your, you know, exactly. what you're worried about with COVID-19. Like if, if you feel like there's going to be some more rolling shutdowns and some other things, let's put this thing in a contract so yeah. that none of us are worried. Like if, if, if we do have another like rolling shutdown, yeah. I'm sure we can put it in a contract with any ally, Al high member hotel Hey, in the event that this happens, we can move it. We can give a refund. We can look down the road. We can, we, cause everybody wants a win-win deal right now. Yeah. And, and we can like make that, that happen. That's been the discussion. We, we've been talking to 
uh, with the clients and our hotel members to talk about, you know, look, flexibility between now and the end of the year. When we look at 2020, we're all going to have to be really flexible to make all this work. Um, and that goes from attrition to cancellation and what that looks like. It's how are we going to make the meetings happen? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, the way, the way I keep phrasing it, uh, we're certainly uncertain. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> you know, we're going to be certainly uncertain for quite some time. So that requires us being flexible and us having some really good conversations. Perfect. Well, hey, I, I, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the conversation. It. Thank I, you. I just, you are one of my heroes in the industry. Oh, I and uh, you may not know it, but you're, you know, especially your LinkedIn presence is one where I pay attention to very, very closely. And, um, you know, I love, I love the passion. I love the, the fairness at which you've, you've looked at this. I think it's totally okay to, to be worried about the economy and also about the, the impact of the health. And, and you have been a leader in our industry. And um, I'm just so, so grateful for that. Um, it's, it's teaching me so many different things about how to look at life, how to look at business. Um, everything's going to be just okay. And even better. I think we're going to, I think we're going to get to a point where we're going to look back on this and we're going to be grateful. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I agree. But I think we're going to be grateful. I, I, I think we, and I keep saying this, I hope we all come out of this a little kinder um, and maybe not so critical of our industry. Uh, we, you know, I always talk about that. We, we tend to, the longer we've been doing this, find everything wrong with our industry or a meeting we go to instead of celebrating the highlights and then knowing there's always things we're going to improve on. And uh, I really do think we're going to have such an appreciation. I, I don't think you fully appreciate something until it's been taken away. And our ability to gather as human beings, our, our ability to connect and see each other, I, I just think they're going to be more fruitful uh, because we know what it means now that it's been taken away. Totally. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I uh, hope, have a good day. Hopefully we can talk soon. I'd love to do it again. Let me know. Stay okay, safe. Pal. Thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Destinations Incentive Travel Podcast. At Destinations, we strive to be your go-to guide and seasoned partner in helping you craft the perfect corporate retreat, president's club, or rewards trip for your company. Check out how we do it at destinationsinc.com.